Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. He was all tucked in and his nighttime prayers had been completed. So mom turns off the little baseball lamp sitting next to his nightstand, uh, which is right next to the little bed that's been pushed up against the far wall. And she tries to exit quietly, hoping that he will sleep, stopping only long enough to turn and repeat the standard routine phrase that they always repeat when she leaves the room, which is night, night, don't let the bed bugs bite. She exits the door, she leaves the uh, door cracked and says a small prayer hoping that her little one will sleep peacefully through the night. But after about an hour from the comfort of her living room, she hears a big commotion from his room and she runs down the hall to check on her little son to find out what had happened. When she walks in the door, she sees her little son next to his bed rubbing his eyes and rubbing his hip where he has fallen, and she says, Honey, what happened? And in his little boy voice, he replies, I stayed too close to the getting inside. I shared with you last week that research has shown that fewer than one in five of those who call themselves born again or call themselves a Christian have any measurable goals for spiritual growth. We are much like the fig tree that we talked about last week in Mark chapter 5 that looks like a fig tree, is probably surrounded by other fig trees, uses the same resources the other fig trees use, and yet produces no fruit. And so Jesus curses that fig tree. In fact, I think that many of us, we're just like that. We, we uh, stay way too close to the getting inside. Jesus gets into us and we get into Jesus and we move into this salvation relationship, but we never develop or grow or mature any further. And so we roll back into and routinely roll back into the same attitudes and the same actions that result in cursing rather than blessings, it's time to grow up. I, uh, I challenged you last week to make a commitment with me to make a hard and a messy journey down a path not towards reformation. Uh, and I defined a reformation to you as something that comes from an outside voice. It's checkbox driven. It's short term and we expect instant results. We don't want a reformation. I challenge you to go deeper than that and let's press forward into a transformation. And so we began this journey and we're going to go further down it this week and in the coming weeks. So what we're doing is we're focusing on seven fundamental shifts that are a genuine indication that you have had an encounter with Jesus. These are the seven shifts that must take place that are our standard. They are the measuring stick. It is the gauge. Uh, it is, it is the, the, the uh, scorecard, if you will, that shows us whether or not we're actually maturing, whether we're actually growing in our relationship. It is our means by which we will evaluate one another. It is the means by which we will spur one another on towards doing better. It is the means by which we will hold one another accountable and point out, hey, you're actually growing or no, you're not. It is our measuring stick so that we're not six foot wide but only an inch deep. We need to grow up. 
And so we start this journey simply and bluntly put, if we fail to make these shifts, we fail to grow. That's the only way I can say it. So here we go. Get your scorecard out. How many of you have your scorecard from last week? You got it? Got it? Okay, put those down. If you don't have your scorecard from last week, your target card, I want you to raise your hand and our ushers are going to bring them to you very quickly. Keep them up. It'll take them just a second. Uh, don't, don't miss this. You've got to have this quickly. Lauren, get some help if you can. Let's get it to each one. That's, you're to hang on to this every week. All right? On purpose, we're doing this together. And we don't want to have to give you seven of these. All right? So get yours if you don't have one. Okay, you got it? Wait just a second. Make sure everybody's got one. All right, here we go. So you're going to fill this out. The first one is this. Uh, My target is spiritual maturity. In order to grow, I, put your name down there, will shift my aim from, here's the first shift, me to you. Me to you. To you. You got it? Write it in the blanks. Me to you. I figure the best way for us to start this is for me to give you a test. Let's see how well you're doing in this shift right here. From me to you. Uh, We recently had an event here at church and had a photographer here. And we took a group shot of our church. And here in just a second, I'm going to put that picture on the screen as a test. All right, here we go. So Dennis, put that on the screen. Here's the group shot. All right, look at it very closely. You got it? Got it kind of imprinted in your mind? See it? All right, take it off the screen, Dennis. Tell me the first thing you looked for. You. I guarantee you that 99.9%, if we took a test right now, most of you looked for yourself in the picture. In fact, it's funny and interesting to me that some of you weren't even in that service. That was the Christmas Eve service. And yet you still are programmed and you have learned instinctively to look for yourself. Um, we, be, we have learned to look out for ourselves first. It begins early. As children, we're prodded to learn a couple of words first. We're, taught, we're, we're prodded on a routine basis to learn the words daddy and mom. Mommy. That's the first two words we want. All, all parents want to hear their children say daddy and mommy first. But then right after that, one of the very next words that our children learn on their own usually is this word, mine. Mine. And then we go throughout life. Claiming everything is mine and it becomes about me. I want to submit to you this morning that we are right now living in the most selfie-centered generation that has ever walked the planet. We are self-centered. I want you to notice that I did not say selfish. There's a huge difference. I did not say that we are walking in the most selfish generation. We are walking in the most self-centered generation generation. Uh, It isn't the same thing, okay? So stay with me. Self-centered folks will give sacrificially, they will serve tirelessly, and they will show concern. I'm going to say that again because you've got to get the difference. Selfish people won't do these things. Self-centered people will give generously and sacrificially. They will serve tirelessly and they will show show concern. The problem is that self-centered people will do these things as long as it looks good on them. 
And as long as it draws attention to them, and as long as it causes other people to applaud them, and as long as it causes other people to esteem them, they will do these things even though they're really only doing it for them. The problem is, is that's, that makes it extremely difficult for, to expose self-centeredness because we learn to hide it deeply under the surface of our lives and we never let Jesus deal with our self-centeredness. I've discovered some things. I've discovered that uh, when you talk to self-centered people and you ask them, how are you doing spiritually? Their answer is almost always the same. And here's what they'll say. They'll say, fairly well, or it's okay. That's their answer. Because they're trying to keep everything on a surface level. It's like being drunk. The more intoxicated you are, the more certain you are that you're not drunk. So then what happens is, is when somebody wants to point out the fact that you're drunk, you will insist even more that you're not drunk. And here's what really takes place. If they continue to insist that you're drunk, you will become offended by the fact that they think that you're drunk. That's, the, that's a picture of what self-centered people do. In fact, some of you are struggling right now with what we're even talking about because you struggle to point the finger at yourself and when I say to you that probably 99.9%, and I'm getting ready to prove it to you, of the people sitting in this congregation and holding these microphones are self-centered, it makes you angry and you resist and you will insist even more. No, I serve. No, I give. No, I... Because we hide it on the surface. So let me see if I can expose it to the degree, to the, to the degree that we cannot deny it. Okay, this is going to be painful. So I want everybody to stand up. <clears throat> And we're going to take a test. I got to pick my iPad up because I got to, I'm going to have to sit down myself. When I read the statements that I, I'm going to read eight statements. When I read the statement that gets you, when it applies to you, I want you to sit down. Why are some of you already sitting down? You already know, don't you? Okay, you, you, you like got the spirit of prophecy and already know what I want to say. All right, if this applies to you, I want you to sit down. Only when it applies to you. Here's number one. I worry a lot about my appearance. I leave conversations and I worry about how I sounded or looked when I was talking with them. If that applies to you, you can sit down. All right, we got some honest folks in the room. Number two, whenever I am in a conversation, somehow the subject always comes back to me. Okay. Sometimes... I drop names, I drop places, I exaggerate details, and I hope it raises the esteem that others have for me. All right, slowly we're getting there. All right, here we go. Number four. You know what's going on. I am impatient with others. I am probably too critical to, and great was the falling away. Yeah. <clears throat> Number five. <laughs> Number five. I don't handle criticism very well. Number six. I don't admire too many people. I'm not easily impressed. My standards are high. <laughs> Number seven, sometimes I feel like someone else's success are a threat to my own. 
And number eight, people who are proud bother me. Can I introduce you to... Okay, I'm not going to be mean. Y'all can sit down. All right, here we go. Uh, William Law says it this way. He says, we love humility and we hate pride only in other people. We never look in our own lives with thought of, of pride other... We never once in our own lives thought of any other pride other than that one than which we saw in other people. The fuller of pride anyone is himself, the more impatient he will be at the smallest instances of it in other people. One of the most famous of Jesus' teaching is well known by society. A recent survey was done and even people who couldn't name the disciples could tell you the basic tenets of this account that I'm going to read to you. In fact... Uh, interestingly enough, I was watching Channel 4 News, and uh, in the middle of the news broadcast, someone mentioned the account that we're going to talk about today. We've tried to make this account and this teaching about religious and non-religious people, but it's really not. What it is, is it's really about the truth that our tendency is to be too busy, too distracted, and too self-centered to pay attention to the people around us. The real lesson that Jesus is trying to get us to shift from during this account is from me to you. He is simply trying to get us to use a measuring stick to identify whether or not we become self-centered and to try to make the shift. I'm going to read it to you. The problem with this account is because everybody knows it, we read right over it. So I want you to not do that this morning as I try to read this to you uh, and see if you can pick it up. It's Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 30. Jesus answered by telling a story. There once was a man traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, down from Jerusalem to Jericho is 14 miles with an ascent of 3,300 feet. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. And they took his clothes and they beat him up and they went off leaving him half dead. But luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. For uh, I struggle with this passage read like that because I was on the Jericho Road. and You can't get to the other side. It's 300 feet straight down a cliff. To the, and then you go over to the other side. So he literally stepped over him. Then a Levite, a religious man, showed up. And he also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him, and when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him, and he gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donk, and he led him on to an inn, and he made him comfortable. And in the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave, to them, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the, religious, the religion scholar reply, responded. And Jesus said, go and do the same. This account teaches us an important lesson as we move, I hope we move, towards this shift from me to you. The first lesson is this. Spiritual people can be self-centered. They just can't be like Jesus. I told you last week that my evaluation of our status as a body, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to what we said last week. Uh, I, I wrote out a, a rather lengthy evaluation of the climate or the culture or the attitude of, our, of, of what we call our body. Not just this body, but the body in, of Christ in whole. 
as a whole. I said it was an evaluation, not an indictment. However, I, I want to shift here and say to you that I think that this passage in particular is a condemning revelation. That church-going, God-loving, rule-following, scripture-teaching, scripture-reading, worship-leading folks can be self-centered. I think it's interesting in this account that Jesus picked out as an example to use as the main two characters, the first two main two characters, a, a, a priest and a Levi. Uh, in essence, what Jesus is doing is if he was sitting here today and was going to teach the same lesson, what he would do is he would use your pastor, the priest, and the Levites, the, the ones leading worship, as the examples. And what he does is he says that the pastor and the worship leader literally step over someone in need. You need to understand that what's taken place is that these two individuals have just spent an entire week in Jerusalem. They were on duty. They were doing their religious duty. They were doing what church folks are supposed to do. They didn't get by with just showing up on Sunday like we do. Their responsibility was to be there one week. And then they make a shift change. And a new priest comes in. And a new worship leader comes in. So they've done what church people do. But now they've gone to church. They involve themselves in these things that church people do. But they return home with no eye towards or empathy for someone in their path that is in need. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus does something very important. He calls us back to the very core of what should separate us as followers of Christ from everyone else. I need you to understand this morning that all other religions other than the one that you're practicing right now. Well, I don't like religion. I'm not religious. Well, you're here. You're part of a religion. It's called Christianity. But all other, all other religions, including Judaism... And especially some of the fragments and factions of Judaism that are off to the side. Every one of those teaches that the further away from people you get, the more you love God. Think, go, come on, work, work with me here. This is not going to be a shouting series, alright? You've got to work with me here. Think about the fact that we, we, uh, in ancient days, we considered the most holy people, those that went and lived up in a monastery and didn't speak to anybody. What we've done is we've, we've glorified isolation. But Jesus is saying that those who follow Him in this thing that we call Christianity, We must recognize that the closer you get to people, the more you love God. We need to understand that God is wed to humanity. That's why he became one of us. Okay, y'all are looking at me funny this morning. Um, see, I think our problem is, is that we've bought a lie. And I'm trying to expose the lie this morning. Are you ready for this? This is going to wreck you because it wrecked me. Here's the lie I think we bought. The more I love God, the more I will love people. That's a lie. The truth is, is that when we are growing in our relationship with Christ, the more we love people, 
the more we love God. Man, I just turned, I just turned church on its head right there from the way we normally do church. We keep thinking this, and I'm reading a lot because I want to get this right, and I've written it all out. I've got, I told Tari I've got more notes for this series than any other series I've ever done. I've got 12 pages of notes today. Relax, we'll still get done. <laughs> we keep thinking that God will teach us to love people. Oh, come on now. Let's get honest. How many of us have, in the privacy of our own home, gone, God, please teach me to love people. Help me love people. Right? Help me, help me. It's the wrong prayer. The fact is, it's people that teach us to love God. Okay. All right, y'all are struggling. And I've had more time to process than, than you have. The reason we struggle with that is because spiritual people have a tendency to be very self-centered. I got to come to church and get my praise on. I need to church, come to church and get my blessing. I'm going to follow Jesus so I can get mine. That's, and Jesus shows us from this account that is totally backwards. Okay, you're not going to like me today. Okay, because I got some practical steps that are going to be painful. The second lesson that I need you to understand is that if we're going to move from you, from me to you, then we got to learn to help someone who can't pay us back and will still be our enemy after we help. Okay. I want you to go back, okay? You're going to have to do this on your own. This week, I want you to go back and I want you to read this account again. And what I want you to do is I want you to read it with an eye towards this. I want you to go back and try to find where the Good Samaritan keeps boundaries. I hear a lot about boundaries today. We need boundaries. I want you to go back and read it. And I want you to look in, in the account. Read it for yourself. I want you to show me one place in the entire account where the Good Samaritan used any wisdom at all. I want you to go back one place and show me where he played it safe. I want you to go back and show me one place where you kept anything in reserve. And when you come back from reading it and looking at it like that, you will discover that you can't find it. Um, so here's the account. A good Samaritan, a Samaritan, an enemy of the Jew. I heard one guy uh, say it like this, so maybe we would understand it better. He said it was like an American Indian in the Old West was out in the desert and came across a cowboy with three arrows sticking out of his back. Picked the, the cowboy up, put him on his horse, brought him to Dodge. Carried him across his shoulder in full Indian garb. Carried the cowboy with three arrows sticking out of his back into the saloon. Checked into a room above the saloon and paid for his care. Think about that now. That, that I understand. I understand that the Indian just took his life in his own hands because he recognizes that when he walks into Dodge with a cowboy, as an Indian with a cowboy with three arrows sticking out of his back, he's at risk. That is literally what's taking place in this account. The, 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 this good Samaritan walks in and as an enemy of the Jews, that's how they were seen. He walks in, checks him in, 
to a Jewish inn and pays for it and says, let's start a tab. And anything he... Well, what if he gets wet while he's getting well? He wants filet mignon. It's on, just put it on the tab. What if he needs extra doctrine? Just put it on the tab. What if he needs x-rays? Have y'all gotten x-rays lately? What if he needs anesthesia? Have you paid for that lately at $185 every 15 minutes? Believe me, I know. And he says, just put it on his tab. And when I come back by. Okay, I got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. This is a blunt call by Jesus to lay our lives down for people that are not like us. Jesus could not have chosen two individuals that were more diametrically different. There are socioeconomic differences. There are racial differences here. There are religious differences here. Samaritans didn't worship God, our God. They worshiped some other God. Okay, there was absolutely no common ground here, none. And yet what we want to do is we want to hold people back and we want to keep people at arm's length and we want to play it safe and we want to separate ourselves and we don't want to let anybody get too close and we, we, we don't trust anybody and we don't want to help anybody and we want to step to the other side and when we want to pass by and let somebody else do it. Especially if they're different. I listed some differences. Especially when they're from a different culture, when they're from a different race, when they're from a different belief system, when they're from a different socioeconomic condition, when they're poor, when they're dirty, when they're gay, when they're addicted, when they're a follower of Islam, when they're an atheist, when they're an agnostic, when they're black, when they're brown, when they're yellow, when they're trashy white. We don't want to have anything else to do with them and we want to isolate ourselves and come to church and do what the priest and the Levi did and pat ourselves on the back and say, I did my duty. But then when we come in contact with someone in need, that's not my job. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to play it safe. And so we remain separate and we remain leery and we remain skeptical and we remain afraid and we remain distance, distant and we remain uninvolved and we remain unmoved and we remain unlike Christ. Jesus' account implores us to become the kind of people who will help those who can't help us back. And then he goes one step further and he's challenging us to help people that after we help them may still hate us. And want us dead. I think I've discovered how self-centered people read this account because it's how I read it. I've read this account all my life. And I've had very little issue with this account. I've read it over and over again. And I've had very little issue with this account. You know why? Because as I read it, I put myself in the story. But do you know where I put myself in the story? The one that got beat up. I don't mind this account If I'm the one that got beat up, okay, y'all not going to like me very much because I'm going to just share with you. I've I've given you two tests and we all failed the second one. So I know we're going to fail this one because one of the telltale signs that we're more like the priest and the Levi and one of the telltale signs that we have failed to make this shift from me to you 
is when we want people to go further than we're willing to go. Okay. So this is what happens. Okay. I'm just going to tell you how this happens and y'all can get over it and love me later. So when I hurt and when I'm sick and when I'm broken, I want you to stop your world. I want you to pick up the phone and check on me. I want you to spend money out of your pocket, use your resources, inconvenience yourself, adjust your schedule. I want you to go out of your way and check on me. Help me. Feed me. Clothe me. Doctor me. But when you're hurt and when you're sick and when you're broken, I'm too busy, and I'm AWOL. Okay, you don't have to like me much right now. I'm just telling you that that description, that, I, that, that status, that, that, that right there is true for most of us, except for the people we're really close to. Like if I'm really close to them, you can count on me. I'll respond. But let us put a call out that somebody's in need or broken inside this, this body or outside this body that you don't know. Okay. All right. All right. Um, the Bible says this man was inconvenienced. He was interrupted. And not only that, he made plans to go back and give more later. I bring this to your attention because I think, and I'm going to say it like this so I don't hurt your feelings. I think we are now involved and we are right smack dab in the middle of a generation I'm just generation as general, so it doesn't apply to you. That have people in it that will film or take photos of a tragedy, upload the information, and then move on. So if somebody's getting a divorce, we'll post that. Somebody's kids run away and causing them pain, we'll post that. We'll make our own judgments about it. Can't pay their bills, we'll make judgments about that too. Okay. There's no compassion. There's no willingness to rescue. There's no instinct to jump in and save. And that is the same exact situation described in the story of the Good Samaritan. But may I challenge you this morning? What if when we read this account, we're not the ones that got beat up? What if when we read this account... That's not the character we are. What if Jesus is saying, I am positioning you in this, inside this story, not as the priest, not as the Levi, not as the one that got beat up, but what if what I'm calling you to be is the one who rescues? What if we're the ones that God sends or positions for the ones who have been beat up? We are so, listen, Jesus is attempting to rattle us and get us to see what we don't see. We're so fixated on ourselves that we can't see the plight or the problem of those around us. And I'm not even talking about church. We have become numb. We are becoming increasingly harder to move. 
We are unwilling to interrupt our busy schedules because what we have to accomplish is so much important, much more important than what they are going through or what they have to deal with, and we pass them by. We are not anybody in the account other, supposed to be other than the one that Jesus sends to help. And so since I can't be with you the rest of the week to point this out to you, I figured the best... Hope, the, the only hope I have is to give you a visible reminder that you can have. I can't be with you 24-7, walk into your office and go, did you see the person you just walked past that was crying in their cubicle and you just went right past him? I can't be with you when you're on Facebook and you're interacting with somebody and there's pain in their post, but you pass by it because you're too busy to respond. I can't be with you this week to say, hey, did you notice so-and-so was missing from church for the last three weeks? Why don't you check on them? I can't be with you. So I need to give you a visible reminder. Are you ready? Same visible. This is what I want you to do. Take your, come on, get your right index finger. I want you to put it either inside or under your shirt. Go ahead, do it. Down, down just above your waist. There's a, for most of us, or all of us actually, there's a little indentation there. Can I share with you the theology of the belly button? Do you feel it? That is a visible reminder that we started life connected. Come on. That... that we were dependent upon somebody else to, to sustain us. I can't have life unless I'm connected to somebody. The life flowing from them to me. It's a visible reminder that we are supposed to go through life connected to one another. That we're dependent upon one another. That life is supposed to flow from us to somebody else and from somebody else to us. So I just want to challenge you this week. You're going to be the goofiest looking group of Christians on the planet. I just want you to go all week long. Even if you have to show up at work with your finger stuck in your belly button. I'm going to go to Starbucks and stick my finger in my belly button. Walk in like this. They're going to think I'm weird. That's okay. If it would cause us to move from me to you. I am convinced that the belly button is a reminder that someone else's survival is wrapped up in me. I never do what I'm about to do, ever. I think this may be the first time in the history of our whole church history. I wrote a prayer. I never do that. I just pray. I wrote one out this time. I'm going to pray this written prayer over you. And then with the couple of seconds we got left, I'm going to give you five practical ways to do what we're talking about. Because if we don't make it practical, you'll check it off the list because you filled the blanks. So if we're going to grow, we have to actually practice what we're talking about. All right, so let me pray this prayer over you. Bow your heads. <clears throat> Jesus, we are self-centered. We are self-absorbed. We are self-focused. And we repent. 
We desire to let you start this shift in us from me to you. We embrace your teachings of loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us, giving to others without expecting repayment. We marvel and we aspire to your example when you stood in the gap and you were more concerned about others than you were about your own pain and suffering. And so you prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. As they killed you. Help us, I pray, to move from me to you in our outlook and in our hearts. Now, Father, out of the depths of my spirit, I pray this. I pray that you would begin this shift. It's going to be a painful shift. It's not a natural shift. This is a shift that can only take place with intentional steps. I pray that as I share five practical ways to start this shift to take place, I pray that you would challenge us with one of these. We've all failed miserably. We're all guilty. We're so much more like the Levi and the priest than we are the Good Samaritan. So, Father, I pray that what you would do is you would open our eyes and help us to see the people around us that are in need and that not only would we see the need, we would respond to the need and we would become more like that Good Samaritan and the shift would be started and we will trace it out throughout this year as we watch, as we watch, as we watch, as we watch for those that have been beat up. And we won't look around for somebody else to respond. We will respond. And even if after we respond, they still hate us and spit on us and want us dead, it doesn't really matter. We're responding out of a heart towards you. Father, I pray that over this body, we would quit holding other people hostage to the standard of the Good Samaritan while we allow ourselves to play the victim. So now, when they don't respond, we're offended. But then we turn around and we see them in need and we don't respond. I pray that instead we would begin to shift from me to you and our outlook would change. Father, I pray you would accomplish this in our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. The practical applications are scary. You're going to have to take a risk. The people that these steps that I'm going to outline to you in these five practical ways that you can start this journey are going to take you into contact with some people that you may not be used to. They probably won't pay you back. In fact, chances are they won't even say thank you. They may take advantage of you. But I need you to remember that as we leave today, as we we go down, Scripture says that He went down. We've been on the mountaintop as we go down. That's what happens when we leave church on Sunday morning. We go down. That we need to take these shifts or chances as we try to make this shift. We've got to do this. This has got to be intentional. I'm telling you right now, you just wasted. I just wasted. I just literally wasted 45 minutes of your life. 
if you don't do these five, one of these five things. Wasted it because it won't matter. The only, the only benefit you will have out of an entire 45 minutes is you will have filled out two blanks on your card. That's it. Nothing else. Wasted. Not worth coming to. Unless you do one of these five. Here, here are five ways that you can begin this shift. Number one, I want you to pick one of these. Number one, make a concerted effort in conversations to keep the subject on them, not us. Number two, this is going to jack with some of you so bad. Number two, I want you to attend church over the next few weeks and months with the sole purpose to see someone who needs help and respond rather than coming to church for my blessing. Here's the part that will mess with you. I want to encourage you to come to church and don't even look for God. I guarantee you nobody, there won't be another pastor in all of America that will have just said that. I want you to come to church for the next few months and I don't even want you to show up here looking for God. Instead, I want you to look for people. I don't even want you to come to worship. Some of you ain't going to have any problem with that. That's a, that's a whole nother message. Because what I want you to do is I want you to show up instead to see someone in pain and see them hurting and in need and respond. And then I will make this submission to you. I would venture to say that you will encounter God and your worship will be deeper than it's ever been and more meaningful than it's ever been even though you didn't come looking for God or to worship. Okay. Three. Go to work every day for the next few weeks with an eye towards the fact that God has sent you to work to help somebody that may never come to church. In fact, I don't want you to go, for, go to work for money or for self-fulfillment, but to find the one who's been beaten up. Look for the beat up soul and come to this conclusion. God put you there for them. And they may never say thank you. And they may not even like you when you're finished helping. Number four, find someone to encourage. Intentionally target somebody. Be intentional about it. The the scripture says he lifted him up, put him on his donkey. You You are going to have to go out of your way and open your mouth and encourage somebody. I was um, uh, getting Julie some new tires this week and uh, the place I was getting tires, there was a Starbucks next to it. So while they were working on the car, I walked over to the Starbucks and I'm standing, I made my order. I'm waiting on them to get my drink. I'm standing out at the end of the counter. A young girl, probably 20, 22 years old, was, was the barista. She was working on the drinks. This goofy guy walked in. I'm telling you, I don't know how to describe him other than that. He was goofy. He was probably 26, 27 years old. Absolutely un, uh, couldn't miss it. He was single. There's no, I mean, he was goofy. All right goofy and he waits on his drink and when he goes to pick up his drink I could see it coming he picks up his drink he stops he looks at her and he gets that big old goofy grin on his face and he goes I just need to tell you you're beautiful no and she's like thank you no no, really he stopped her three times really you're really pretty 
Like really, really pretty. She wasn't all that, but still, he thought. <laughs> he thought she was pretty. So here I am. I'm watching this whole thing unfold. He gets his drink. He walks out, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting because I know what's getting ready to happen. She is going to blast him to all of her coworkers. I'm waiting for her to push the little button and go, dude, this guy just hit on me. And did you see how goofy he looked? And instead, the entire time I was waiting on my drink, from a frown, suddenly, she's smiling ear to ear. She wasn't interested in him. He was goofy. But something about his words, something about simple words, even though he had a hidden agenda, something about the words got to her. Can I ask you this week, as a practical way, could you just stop long enough to encourage somebody? Your words make a difference. Number five, and then I'm going to get out of your way because I've used way too much time. I'm going to ask you to do this, and this will be tough for some of you, but it may be the step you need to take. Get something away. Dig deep. From your own need, meet somebody else's need. Oil and wine. That's what he poured in on his tab, at his expense. And maybe what God needs to do. See, our man, our treasure determines where our heart is, right? And for some of you just saying some words, you can do that without even thinking. And for some of you coming to church looking for people that are hurting, you can do that without thinking. Some of you going to work looking for people that are hurting without thinking. But for some of us, for Jesus to really get us started on this journey, we're going to have to take stuff we like and own and love and we're going to have to give it away. But that's my favorite coat. Give it away. That's money I had set aside. Like I need to, I, I need, daddy needs a new car. Daddy needs a new pair of jeans. But Jesus is going to say, look, they're in need. Give it to them. And when you do, you become invested. And you take boundaries off. And you take chances. And you take a risk. Those are the five practical steps. I want to challenge you. If you don't take one of those steps, this shift will not take place. You will continue to read this account as the one that got beat up. We said this was going to be hard. We said this was going to be messy. We said this was going to be painful. Welcome to the journey. This is hard, but it's necessary. Come on, Tari. You got to take this from me. I'll keep going. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion Church resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion. 